Well, hey everybody, this episode is brought to you by my own company, ISOAMP. So uh, we have like a one week hiatus where we have a new sponsor starting on July 1st. And so I wanted to uh, talk about ISOAMP a little bit on this episode, um, but we're going to talk today to Josh from Helios Payments about high risk. I don't know about you, yeah. Patty, but I definitely learned a few things and had a great conversation. I, I really did too. And it was much more, um, it seemed to me that it's much more approachable than yes. I thought it was before we spoke to Josh. Yeah, I agree. He did a good job breaking it down. And, and so the topic is how to build a profitable portfolio with high risk. I think right. everybody would be pleasantly surprised at some of the progress that he's been making with being able to place CBD, cannabis, things like that. Um, right. So very interesting conversation. Uh, then questions in the field. I talk about how to sell dual pricing, share some of my experiences from the field, the phone, Zoom, different ways I've been selling dual pricing myself personally, yeah. and uh, some of that. And then uh, Patty, tell us about the insiders. Uh, we have an update on crypto. If anybody's been paying attention, crypto has been crashing a lot lately uh, in value. But uh, there's some other interesting news. Um, stick around to the end and listen. Awesome. So um, are you ready to get going? Let's do it. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey, everybody. Patty and I are here today with Josh Ewan, who is the COO at Helios Payments. How are you doing today, Josh? Doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great Absolutely. to have you. So Josh is a uh, really an expert on high risk merchant accounts. And this is such an interesting topic. We're going to really dive in today to get practical and kind of talk about how to build a profitable portfolio out of high risk. Uh, it's an area that I think a lot of agents that would listen to our podcast just don't have a lot of understanding or there's a lot of confusion around that. Um, but before we dive into that topic, Josh, give us your background a little bit. You haven't been on for a little while. Give our, our audience kind of a flavor of like, how did you get into this crazy industry? And then how did you end up you know, going after these high risk accounts? Yeah, sure. So, so my background uh, for a long time has been marketing. Uh, about 12 years ago, uh, our CEO and I uh, formed a company called Athena Beauty Labs. And we sold, we were high risk, we were high risk merchants. We sold skincare products on trial in the US and the UK for uh, about seven or eight years. Um, the, the hardest part of that business for us was the merchant processing. Right. Mm -hmm. So chargebacks, complaints, terminations, all that stuff we had to deal with. And we got really an intimate knowledge of what that looks like from the merchant side firsthand. So uh, fortunately, our CEO used to be in ISO, sold his book of business years ago. But um, after a few years, we, had, we had built up you know, a processing department. We had a lot of connections with the banks. So uh, about seven years ago, we launched out Helios Payments. Um, and our focus for Helios is uh, purely high-risk e-com. So born of necessity. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, I, I, I think that experience gives us perspective and gives mm -hmm. us a unique way to communicate with our merchants and also to educate our agents about the space. Yeah, sure. yeah I love it. So, so let's do this, Josh. Kind of as we get practical here and dive into the details, let's start with business types because I think – the word, you know, the term high risk merchant account means a lot of different things to different people. Um, and I think it changes over time too, uh, as different regulations come out and different things. So talk to us about what business types uh, are you seeing success with? What are some trends that you're seeing? Maybe types that seem more high risk now than they did or ones that are becoming low risk. So give us a little bit of insight there. Yeah, sure. So I, I think uh, first we need to define more clearly what high risk is because uh, there are different views of high risk depending on which risk department, which underwriting department you go to, right? So mm -hmm. you go to PPS with, let's say, I don't know, a Kratom deal, right? They're, they're going to turn you away. 
you go to, you know, uh, uh, an underwriting team that handles and underwrites Kratom, then that's not necessarily, you know, high risk. And, and, and it's not even Kratom CBD in the usual suspects. It can be even just large ticket types, mm-hmm. travel, uh, sure. credits, credit repair. You know, there are a lot of different things that fall under high risk, but at its core, high risk is uh, high risk for the bank. It's a higher risk of chargebacks, higher reputational risk, and so on. So it's it's definitely a different animal. Uh, in terms of the, the verticals that we're seeing recently, uh, for, for years and years, the, the sort of, you know, uh, super nuts for uh, high risk was nutraceuticals. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've seen skincare offers, diet offers, you know, all that stuff online. That was kind of the bread and butter, uh, along with trial billing, because um, that had been, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just rampant for years and years. That's changing. You know, we're seeing in the past year a, a broader variety of kinds of merchants. So there's still some Nutra in there, um, still CBD, CBD distillates like Delta 8, Delta O, Delta 10, um, but also stuff like lending and payday loans, gadgets. Um, I mean, we've got even education in our portfolio. Um, so it, it is changing. And, and I'll tell you, CBD is, is one of those categories that's constantly changing mm-hmm. and, and it has always constantly changed. You know, I think that's just an indication of how new it is uh, in terms of regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we, we try and keep our you know, finger on the pulse of kind of what's changing, what's working, who's approving what and so on. Yeah. Well, CBD is almost, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I think it's interesting that a lot of times the verticals that change the most are the ones that are more the reputational risk, it seems like, where it's mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, the banks are like, do we want to be associated with this or not? And then over time, it, it you know, I'll see it shift one way, then it'll go back the other way. And it's kind of just oh, yeah. depends on a lot of variables versus like the, the financial risk seems to be a little more kind of obvious. It's like, look, if, if you're getting a lot of chargebacks, you're a financial risk. And so it's yeah. kind of more quantifiable, it would seem. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh. I'd like to talk about prospecting, you know, um, you know, how do you how and where do you identify these high risk accounts? I mean, it seems to me, like you said, things like nutri, uh, what are they? Nutri, not nutraceuticals, nutraceuticals, nutraceuticals. Sorry, it's a word. That and CBD. I mean, those are the ones that, you know, you know, jump up and, you know, I see lots of lots of those around. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, obviously this is a much bigger market. And I'm just wondering, you know, as an agent out there thinking about going into um, high risk, you know, how do they identify um, some of these prospective accounts? So some of it, you know, is, is pretty easy. If you have an agent that is used to doing, you know, door-to-door sales and hitting restaurants and bodegas and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. um, they're going to see CBD shops. They're going to see dispensers. Right. That kind of stuff kind of sticks out. Um, I, I think the real, uh, the real money and the, the real like volume in terms of leads, uh, mm-hmm. agents really need to stop thinking locally in terms of prospecting and marketing right. and start thinking more globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, LinkedIn is a great source. Uh, uh, trade shows, absolutely a great right. source, right? Because you can find trade shows that are very niche specific. Uh, one that is great is Affiliate Summit. Uh, it's been around for years. They do an East Coast and a West Coast. They also do Berlin and and uh, I, I think um, Southeast Asia or something. So mm-hmm. shows like that can really uh, be a great source for leads. Um, mm-hmm. For us, uh, for a long time, we've done trade shows and also networking. So networking with other uh, vendors in the merchants ecosystem. So uh, mm-hmm. customer support teams, fulfillment teams, formulators, they all have a high touch relationship with the merchant. 
Um, and, and they're hearing on a weekly basis, you know, what's what's working, what's not. Hey, mm-hmm. oh my, my God, you know, I, I just lost a ton of mids. I'm gonna have to, you know, slow down our orders this week. They hear that stuff. So if an agent can form a relationship with you know those types of vendors, that could be a great consistent source of leads. Uh, and, and just kind of adding to that, uh, we found that those kind of relationships really only work if it's reciprocal. Right. right? Of course. So, so what we've done is, uh, you know, for that networking piece, we typically have one vendor per, you know, kind of service type that we're partnered with. Um, mm-hmm. So that way, you know, we're giving them as much love as we can and, and we get, you know, leads in return. Um, content marketing is, is another great strategy. Uh, obviously, you know, it's a bit of a longer game. Mm-hmm content marketing, social, um, that's something we do and we've done for a long time. Uh, and, and there's other benefits besides prospecting and SEO and stuff for doing that. Um, but yeah, you know, again, I think the biggest shift is, you know, looking less, you know, on your block and looking more online to find those leads. Sure. Sure. Okay. So once you get the leads, you know, what do you do in terms of, of reaching out to contact them and, and what does the sales cycle look like? I mean, I would imagine it's a little bit different than, uh, you know, selling to a restaurant or a bodega, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think it, it's going to depend on where the leads come from, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with that strategy that, that, you know, we were talking about with networking, it, it's, it's so effective because the leads are warm when they come mm-hmm. to you and they right. come, they come from a recommendation, right? Mm-hmm. So by the time you have that conversation, uh, you know, the merchant is already keyed up and interested and needs help. Um, and it, one big change here that I, I think, again, is a bit of a shift for low risk agents is that merchants in the high risk space, for the most part, they, they're not going to fight over 10 basis points, right? They're less worried about price and more worried uh, about things like, hey, can you actually support my vertical? Like right. really, really support yeah. it. Not just say you are, but support it. And not close the door next week. Yeah, exactly. Which uh, I mean, we can have a whole a whole a whole conversation about, on that. Sure. Stripe and Square and how they deal with high risk, but um, but yeah, uh, you know, high risk merchants they want to know that you can support them, that you can get them as much uh, approved monthly volume as possible, um, and, and and that is really it. And, and also that you have the reach to maybe get them into banks that they don't have access to right now. Uh, so that's that's the biggest shift. Um, yeah, that's a really good lead in actually for my next question, because I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, just getting deals approved. So let's say, you know, you reach out, you have a good contact, you know, you talk to them about it. Um, they show interest. Um, you know, the big challenge with high risk, at least for most agents in the industry is they're like, hey, I've got these deals. I found this CBD shop or whatever it is, but I, you know, I don't know where, I don't know how to get it approved. So talk a little bit about how Helios Payments approaches that. Um, I'm assuming you have different relationships and things. And so how do you go about actually getting these deals placed and, and approved without hopefully putting the the agent and the merchant through, you know, a lot of, a lot of different hoops yeah. and trial and error, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, we should definitely talk just a little bit about the underwriting process um, yeah. because it is going to be different for high risk. High risk is uh, definitely more invasive and takes longer than low risk. Um, so agents should be prepared for that. Um, but you know, for, for Helios payments, our job is to find the right banks, plural banks for the merchant. Um, we've got partnerships with 35 different acquirers. So pretty much any vertical that a merchant has, whether it's in the US or the EU, we can support. Uh, and our underwriting team is very familiar with the different rules uh, that each bank has. 
Um, and we're also very familiar with the application process and uh, it gets kind of detailed, you know, the, the banks you app to first, uh, how you're apping, how much you're apping for uh, MCC codes, all that stuff. Um, so our team is, is really familiar with that. So if you have an agent that maybe has, uh, you know, a, a handful of high-risk leads, they, and they're partnered with, let's say, Bantip or PPS or someone, they need more than just one bank to take those two, right? Right. Um, and that's, I think, where we come in uh, with access to all of our banks. It, once, when an agent signs up with us, they've got immediate access to every bank in our portfolio. You know, it, and I think, Josh, it's interesting here to almost take a little side note because, you know, again, I as you're talking and I'm, I'm trying to imagine how our audience is receiving it and I'm wondering how much they really understand about high risk, you know, like, and even just processing in general. I think with low risk, it's easy to kind of feel like, well, why does a bank even really need to be involved? And what does a bank do? It's low risk. They, they approve it. And there's right. not this understanding of this money flow, but talk a little bit about how does this actually like work? I mean, why is this a risk for the bank financially? Not, not reputational, but let's talk about the financial side for a second. Why is it that a bank might not want to take a particular merchant account? Sure. If we're looking just purely at financials, um, it is the risk of chargebacks and refunds. Mm-hmm. So imagine, for instance, uh, and, and just to kind of put things into context, when you get into high-risk processing, uh, oftentimes we're not talking about merchants doing five or $10,000 a month. We're talking about merchants doing 50, 100, 200. I, I got a merchant doing half a million a month. I mean, you know, larger volumes. And that can happen really, really fast, especially if a merchant is using affiliate marketing, which is often the case with, you know, high risk uh, processing. So the bank's risk there is uh, the chargebacks that are coming in and the refunds that are coming in, they need to be dealt with, Right. If the merchant is still alive and has money in the bank account, those chargebacks and refunds come out of there. But if a merchant you know, ramps up their volume and gets you know, $100,000, $300,000 a month, there's a lag with the chargebacks, right? Mm-hmm. So customer orders today, you may not see that chargeback for 30 days. Right. So if the merchant closes their doors, shuts the bank account, someone has to pay for those refunds and chargebacks. And ultimately, it's the sponsor bank. Right. Right. Exactly. I think that's very important for people to understand that, you know, these payment processing accounts are, are really a form of lending in a, in, in a way, right. uh, in some ways, because there is that lag time. And so they're fronting this money and saying, we are trusting that this transaction is legitimate and that the merchant has the funds to cover the refund of the chargeback in, in the case that it happens. Um, and so the banks have to evaluate that. And so things like bank balance, that you know, on a on a low risk merchant account, no one's asking what what's the merchant's bank balance. But on a high risk, if somebody's going to do a hundred thousand dollars a month and their bank balance is usually around ten thousand dollars, that may be troublesome, right, Josh? Yeah, absolutely. And and listen, you can get approvals. You know, if you have a merchant that has uh, you know, let's say credit score of six eighty and you know five thousand in the bank account, you can get approvals with that, assuming everything else in the package is clean. Um, but uh, but yeah, absolutely. That's that's where, the, that's where the risk comes in, and and there's just kind of uh, you know adding to that, um, there is a um, sort of a teeter totter effect between rates and uh, a merchant's reserve account, which um, we'll, get, we'll get into. Yeah, just like, there's a, there are a lot of pieces there's to this, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So so high risk merchants typically a bank will take. 10% of every dollar that's processed and put it into a separate non-interest bearing account called a reserve mm-hmm. account. 
Right. It's typically held for six months on a rolling basis. So the more money that is in that and the higher the fees are, the less perceived risk there is for the bank. So oftentimes we'll have high-risk merchants say, hey, can, can you, you know, negotiate a reserve release for me with the bank? And we'll say, yeah, we could do that. But keep in mind that if we reduce your reserve balance and your chargeback spike, that's going to kind of put you on the radar. So, so yeah, there are a lot of pieces to high-risk processing. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot to unpack. And I, let, let's, let's unpack just a little bit more and then we'll get on to the next question here. But, but again, I think this is so valuable. This is a good part of the, because to me, I really want people to understand what this is. I think it's so important, yeah. right? So the reserve account, let's talk about that for one more second. So again, we, we have a situation where, um, let's take a travel merchant, maybe that'd be a good example. So I go, I pay for a trip. I prepay for this cruise I'm going to take in three months. Well, mm-hmm. two months down the road, I decide, you know what? Eh, I don't think I really want to do that trip. So I'm going to go ahead and I have a cancellation policy. So I'm going to cancel this. And I spent $5,000 on this trip. So now I go ahead and I cancel this and I say, I want to you know, get my refund. Well, let's say that the merchant has shut their doors. They've shut their bank account and they no longer exist. Well, now all of a sudden the bank who, you know, I go to my bank and my bank goes to the merchant's bank and says, Hey, we got to get this $5,000. Right. So Talk about within that context, Josh, why is the, what is the reserve account and why is that important to the bank? Yeah. So well, the reserve account is there in case of things like that, right? Right. Right. Uh, the reserve account is there. If the merchant closes their bank account, then the bank needs someplace to pull those chargebacks of refunds from. And it usually comes from that reserve account. Yeah. Got it. So it's kind of a extra cushion, I guess we would say, right? A risk cushion. Um, and, and over time, if they're pulling 10% out, it's going to grow and they're going to have more of a cushion there. Um, we're going to get to the fees in a second. So let's, let's move on to the next question here. So, um, okay, we have a deal approved. We got through all this underwriting and all this stuff. And okay, the deal's good to go, right? Talk about activating the accounts. Um, you know, uh, what is kind of traditional uh, equipment versus virtual terminal software? You know, what's involved usually with getting these accounts activated? And of course, I know it's going to vary by business type, but give us a little flavor of that. Sure. Well, it, actually, it's it's much more simple than it would be for a retail merchant where you have to you know yeah. order the equipment, get it shipped out. Maybe there's leasing involved. Uh, you know, I, I just wrapped up a lease deal for uh, like four or five Clover terminals, and it, it was not fun. <laughs> it was not fun. There's you know, a whole lot of phone calls to sort out the lease and get the equipment delivered. And with high risk ecom, it's really just deploying the gateway. And typically NMI um, is the gateway deployed. That's kind of the de facto high risk uh, payment gateway. Sure. It's dead easy. You know, we can we get it deployed the same day, send the, the credentials to the agent or the merchant, and you know, NMI will integrate with most, you know, quote unquote high risk or e-com CRMs like you know, WooCommerce, uh, Sticky IO, Connective, and so on. So so the integration deployment piece is uh, very easy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, so then I want to talk a little bit of, okay, you, you get them activated, but then we have this issue hanging out there, of course, which is the chargebacks. Yeah. So, you know, let's talk about, cause I know not only, you know, we, we've, we've been talking about it as a negative, which it is as far as risk is concerned, but it can also be an opportunity. So talk a little bit about how your company manages the chargebacks and how you kind of collaborate with your uh, merchants on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so chargebacks are top of our list as far as the metrics that we look at, chargebacks and volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, about two years ago, we rolled out a chargeback representment service. So we help merchants to uh, keep the chargebacks in check, to reduce chargebacks, and also to help them understand where their chargebacks are coming from by looking at analytics. And 
and it can get very detailed. We can look at chargebacks by bin and, and they can start doing bin blocking. You know, we can look at chargebacks by affiliate and even sub-affiliate ID. So if they are doing affiliate marketing, which is a huge source of chargebacks, they can really use that Intel to weed out the bad affiliates and keep the good traffic. Um, and you know, in this space, chargebacks just happen and often they, you know, they, they happen in large volume. Um, so this service helps us to help our merchants and help keep our portfolio healthy, but it's also a great source of revenue. Uh, and, and as an agent, um, you know, if you're not doing that right now with your leads, you need to be. Some of these accounts in high risk will see more revenue from chargeback mitigation than we ever do for processing. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because again, it's so important because the, the primary need of the merchant is just being able to process payments you know, predictably. And once they have the account active, the I would imagine the number one reason that would it would become canceled or they wouldn't be able to process is that they had too many chargebacks. They didn't deal with it pro- appropriately. And therefore, you know, the bank said, hey, we don't want to deal with you anymore. This is too much of a risk. Absolutely. Um, right. So, right, right. okay. So shifting gears a bit, I have kind of one last topic here that I wanted to touch on and that is compensation. So I always struggle with this, Josh. I don't know about you, but like when I'm talking to agents who are lower risk or lower risk ISOs, and they're like, okay, well, what's the schedule A cost? What's the residual split? And I'm like, that's not the language that you use to describe compensation. I mean, it is, but it's, but it's a little, you know what I mean? It's a little different the way, the way you think about it. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, it's, it's more of just a dollars, you know, analysis here. So, so talk about that a little bit when you're talking to a, a you know, a low risk um, agent, they've got some, some high risk deals, but they're not used to dealing with that. How do you describe how the compensation works as it relates to high risk? So, well, I mean, the compensation works the exact same way. It's just that the numbers are bigger. <laughs> so, um, like I mentioned before, merchants in the high-risk space, I mean, they are price sensitive to a degree, but that is not their pain point. Their pain point isn't, hey, I'm paying too much. It's, hey, I can't process at all, right? right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, when it comes to compensation, uh, you know, uh, James, you could probably speak to this better than I could uh, on low-risk deals. You know, what's a typical, you know, margin? Uh, in terms of basis points, you might see on a lower steel, 20 basis points? Uh, probably probably 20 or 30 on traditional and probably 150 on um, cash discount. But again, those yeah. deals are going to generally be smaller volume is the is the difference there. Yeah. You know I mean? yeah. So so in, in high risk, uh, we typically see uh, not 20 basis points, but, you know, around about two points. Right. So 200 basis points. I'll let that silence kind of sit there for a second because, because it's, it's a big difference. And especially if a merchant is doing high volume, right. uh, you know, the, the, the revenue can be, can be pretty significant. Um, yeah. But on average, in terms of margin, uh, we see uh, 1.8 to 2% margin on every deal. So yeah, about 10 times the norm in, the, in a yeah. low risk environment. Yeah. Just to make it even more clear, as an example, if you had a merchant processing hundred thousand dollars this month, we would see roughly eighteen hundred to two thousand dollars in gross commissions from that, right? And and again, though, I think where where the confusion comes is kind of the way you get to that number, right? So, like for a traditional account, you might say, "Well, we got to that number because we have a schedule A cost of you know three cents and three basis points and a sixty percent or seventy percent residual split," whereas mm-hmm. and you know, and we charge them, you know, whatever we charge them three percent or something. Whereas when, you know, our interchange plus 40 basis points or something like that, when we're talking about high risk, the merchant might be paying five, six, 7%, but 
right? Mm-hmm. And then the 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 split might be significantly lower the the percentage because the bank wants to keep some you know pretty good chunk of this to offset their risk. But the net effect is the profits generally are higher with high risk, even though these percentages and things are are a little different. Is that did I, did I say that right? Is that accurate? Yeah, that that is pretty accurate. Uh, and it, it's not always, you know, two points. Um, there are some verticals, some business types that are so high risk that uh, underwriters will uh, have uh, minimum pricing that you need to do. And the minimum pricing could be, you know, seven, nine, five, really high. Right? Wow. Uh, but, you know, the, the bank needs that just to approve the deal, just to offset the risk. Um, so, so the pricing uh, and Schedule A's and, and whatnot works basically the same with high risk. There's right. still a Schedule A. There's still a buy rate, um, but uh, you know, often the buy rate is a little bit higher, and you know, the split is typically lower. So, low risk. You know, I, I know uh, we're we're partnered with uh, for low risk. We've got a ninety percent split. High risk is going to be closer to fifty percent ish. Um, and, and we've, I think, done a good job of being really aggressive with our splits, but um, it's going to be a lower split. And, and those business types that, that I was talking about that are higher risk between that minimum pricing and the uh, the commission schedule, you might see something closer to like 40, 50 basis points on the deal and you know maybe make up for that in gateway fees and, and whatnot. Right. Right. So, so yeah, it's, and I think it's just an interesting one. I mean, it, again, net effect, it's more profitable, but just the way you're getting to that profit looks a little different. So I think for an agent getting into it, it's like, just be open to some different ways of looking at this. It's ultimately about making more money. The way you get there, uh, you know, it's just a little bit different. So, okay. So I, I love this. I mean, I think we can go on for quite some time talking about all this stuff, but I want to, I do want to give you a chance, of course, to talk about how you work with agents and ISOs a little bit. So talk about that model. You know, if it's an agent or an ISO listening and they're saying, Hey, you know, we have high risk deals or we want to go after high risk deals. Um, how do you work with them to help them to create a profitable portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. So, and we, we, we do work with a lot of agents. Some are, you know, properly in high risk, and some are, you know, in low risk, and maybe they're they want to kind of add some some high risk and, you know, some some margin to their portfolio. Right. So um, I, I like to think we're you know, a very kind of hands-on uh, company. So you know, phone calls. I, I love talking shop with agents and merchants and and sharing ideas. Uh, we, you know, we often you know exchange contacts if a merchant is looking for a fulfillment house or. You know, uh, uh, customer service team. You know, we're happy to do those kind of intros to help them move along. And the same, the same goes with agents. You know, you know, suggesting trade shows like affiliate summits and other things that they can do to to drive traffic. Um, you know, to to build a profitable book in high risk, um, you need to prospect, right? You need to get familiar with the space. You need to have the banks. That is, that's the biggest thing. So, so the first thing, if you have a seasoned high risk merchant that you're going after as an agent, probably one of the first questions they'll ask you is, what banks are you with, right? So if you're only with Vantif or you know one, one ISO, um, that's a huge disadvantage and, and you need to really to add those in. And again, I think that's that's really where our value lies and, and uh, how we can help agents the most is uh, they don't have to do all that. I mean, it took us you know, seven years, <laughs> seven years to build up 35 different acquiring relationships. Um, so they can come to us, yeah. uh, you know, we can get them access to all those right away. And also some consulting and say, Hey, you know, what are you going after? Uh, you know, how can we help? What's the best way to do it? Yeah. 
Love it. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Josh, great stuff. I know a lot of people in our audience uh, are going to want to reach out. They're going to want to learn more. Do you have a, a website link or other ways you would uh, place you'd send them to learn more? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, if, if uh, you're interested in checking out Helios Payments and learning about high risk, learning about us, uh, you can just go to heliospayments.com slash agents, plural. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, uh, James, uh, you're welcome to intro anyone directly to me. I'm happy to answer any questions that anyone has about the high risk space. So awesome. And uh, that is Helios is spelled H E L I O S. So it's H E I, I'm sorry, H E L I O S payments.com slash agents, Helios payments.com slash agents. And of course, we'll put that in the email in the show notes as well. Uh, Josh, as always, man, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for taking your time today to share your insights with us. Yeah. And thank you both. Thank you, Patty. Thank you, James. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great. Learned a lot. Well, folks, today's episode is brought to you by ISOAMP. Um, ISOAMP is James's brainchild. Um, so I'm going to leave it to him to explain a little bit about it. Yeah, definitely. So uh, statement analysis. Uh, mm -hmm. So we, we believe three things at ISOAMP. We believe statement analysis is important, number one. Uh, now, we're moving to, there's flat rate pricing, there's cash discount, there's different things. But statement analysis is more than just savings analysis. It's also about right. margin. And right. it's about understanding the statement, understanding what you're dealing with. But of course, also, there's these other segments, whether it's high risk, whether it's B2B, whether it's traditional pricing on larger merchant accounts, whether it's generating proposals. We believe that analyzing statements is important. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we believe that accuracy is important. Oh, yes, it is. Um, this is a belief that we think that a lot of our competitors do not believe quite as strongly as we do, um, but mm -hmm. we believe accuracy is important. And that means you have to have trained professionals that are able to handle uh, the statements and handle situations that the AI cannot. We're actually heading to right. the MWAA uh, here uh, next month. And uh, while we're there uh, in our booth, we're going to actually show some of the statements that we get and some of the um, proposals we've returned, statements oh, that are cool. crooked, blurry. Mm -hmm. You know, they were taken on somebody's lap while they were driving down the road with their phone. With their um, phone, right. <laughs> you know, uh, the, this is the reality of it. And we believe statement right. analysis is, is important enough. We don't, if you're discouraging your agents from sending a statement because you don't want to deal with it, that's a huge mistake because huge mistake. statement analysis is important. Accuracy is important. If you're going to get statement analysis done, you need to know it's going to be done right. Um, and then finally, uh, number three, we believe you need statement analysis that you can trust. And by that, what we mainly mean is you need statement analysis you can trust to fully outsource. Um, we right. had in the last two weeks, two of the largest companies in the industry that everybody would know. Um, I'm sure we'll do some posts and stuff with them. Uh, but these two companies uh, went the entire way now and have fully delegated statement analysis to our company. And by that, I mean their agents are logging into uh, a branded version of our system. Uh -huh. it looks just like it's their system, not our system, of course. Right. They log in, they upload their statements. If they have questions about it, they put a question in there, which comes to our team. We respond through the system. So everything looks like it's their statement analysis department, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's really our company doing everything. And they want, you know, they're, they're out of it. And now, now that it's just a cost, it's not an inconvenience. Right. Now they're going, wow, let's really encourage. They're sending emails out. They're promoting it to their team and saying, send statements in. We want as many as you can send. Because right. when you really break it down and like, oh, it's just a cost, it's X per statement and we're, we're very cost effective. It's like, well, wait a minute. We want as many of these as we can get. These are all leads for merchant accounts. So right. they're encouraging statement analysis instead of as like a necessary evil. So they've gone in that full direction. So 
where we're at right now, I'm very excited about the company. I haven't talked about it a lot, but I'm very confident we are the leader in analyzing statements. We do thousands of statements a month. Um, and again, it's full service, fully branded, fully customized. We have a fantastic solution. So if you want to learn more about that, whether you're an individual agent, you've got multiple processing companies you sell for and you want one statement analysis department, or you're an ISO and you want a fully branded experience where you can take that, that one person in your company or those two people in your company that really understand the industry and you want to maybe have them deploy their time more profitably than keying mm-hmm. data into a spreadsheet all day, mm-hmm. um, outsource statement analysis to a company that you can trust. Go to yes. getisoamp.com. So it's G-E-T-I-S-O-A-M-P.com. Getisoamp.com. Check it out. We've made huge strides. Are at right now about 90% of our statements we turn around in less than 30 minutes. Yeah, um, that's we do have some that, of course, require review. They require a lot of data entry. Every single statement you send us, we will do it. We will do it accurately. We do 100% of the work. You do none of the work. We send it to you. Then you can edit the pricing and all that in our system. But as far as analyzing the statement, pulling the data from the statement, categorizing the data from the statement. We do 100% of the work. So check it out. Go to getisoamp.com, request a free demo. My team will follow up and I would really appreciate it. And you will really appreciate it too. Yes. Thanks, Patty. Uh-huh. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you are an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So, Patty, today I'm going to talk about how to sell dual pricing Um, I've talked a lot about dual pricing, compliance, and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've actually had a lot of people that have been asking me, uh, even ISOs that use our training subscription, James, when is the video course going to come out on how to sell dual pricing, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I told them all the same thing. It will come out as soon as I sell a good bit of dual pricing. Um, I'm a big believer in like, you got to sell it if you want to train people on how to sell it. Got to do it before you you teach it. Yes. Yes. Uh, so that's what I've been doing. So I've been going out. Obviously, I have like four companies that I run. So it's not like I can go out and sell payment processing all day. Um, you've got plenty. Of, you know, you got plenty of spare time, James. Yeah, it's right. like uh, Sunday evenings, right, uh, right. maybe no, Thursday really. mornings. I, I have four kids, so those times aren't. Don't well, forget that. So, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so I've been going out just a few hours a week. Uh, you saw a post on Facebook. I think about. Uh, I took my son with me to do an install. Oh, loved it. Loved it. And yeah. if you haven't seen that, go on Facebook and look at it. James's son is cute anyway. I think all kids are cute. So, oh, of course, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we had a lot of fun. Yeah, he, he had him actually helping him out. We're getting, you know, get him started young, James. Yeah, 10 years old. And he was, uh, I made him put in the Wi-Fi password on the number pad, which took forever because it's like 25 characters or something. And he had to, you uh, know, we didn't uh-huh. bring a USB keyboard. I'm a little rusty. So anyway, uh-huh. so he did that for me. But we had a lot of fun putting our Valor terminals in, of course, with dual pricing, uh, multiple, uh, you know, to location deal. So anyway, so I've been selling it. I've sold a uh, physical location. I've sold some, uh, I sold uh, one uh, card not present merchant using a virtual uh-huh. terminal solution. And then I also have sold several of the integrated payment now that we updated my CC storage, the, the ISV that right. I own, the software company. Um, and I did some of the sales myself personally over Zoom, just because I wanted to see how does this work in a, a kind of a vertical specific environment. So right. I definitely feel like I have a handle on it and I have really good news to share very quickly. Just a couple things I want to share with everybody about dual pricing. Next week, we're going to dive into more detail on how to overcome some of the main objections like 
My customers are going to not like it, that sort of right, thing. Right. But here's the thing. Dual pricing, we've already talked about the advantages in terms of compliance, the fact that Visa is against um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the non-cash adjustment. But I think actually the, the better reason to switch to dual pricing is that it is much more intuitive and easy to explain to the merchant. Yeah, sure. You know? Um, so, you know, ultimately I have, I have all these videos I've done over the years on how to explain cash discounting to the merchant. And it's complicated because at the, at a high level, you're saying, I'm going to show you how to implement a cash discount by adding a fee. By adding a fee. I've, that's always struck me as like, you know, odd incongruous, you know, (laughs) it is, it is. And, and I think merchants kind of, you know, struggle with it a little bit. In mm-hmm, addition to that, mm-hmm. consumers don't really like seeing an extra fee on the receipt, as we talked about with uh, right. Keith Sampson recently from uh, NAB. Right. So there's there's several kind of pain points there. Dual pricing is much easier and intuitive. So when you walk into the merchant location, step number one is you should be generating curiosity and questions. Um, if right. you're not doing that, you're giving way too much information initially. Yeah. Um, so Agreed. curiosity and questions. So when I walk in, I don't say, Hey, would you like to pass the cost of processing onto the consumer through a higher card price? Mm-hmm. Like that's nah. you know, that's, that's not yeah. a good idea. And and I've seen, I've actually heard a lot of agents that don't maybe say it quite that badly, but that's pretty much what they do. Right, right. Um, and you can't do that. So instead, what you do when you walk in is you start out by talking about eliminating the processing fees. Um, maybe you're doing, maybe you have a monthly fee. So you talk about flat rate processing. You know, one of my friends that sells a lot of these programs, he says, um, he says, hey, uh, the reason I stopped by today is I do flat rate payment processing. $29.95 a month. You can process as much volume as you want. There's no percentage or per item fees. So that's what he says right off the bat. And so that just big, generates a lot of curiosity, especially a larger merchant's like, what? How would you yeah. do that? You know? Right, and then, right. then he goes, so you're going to start off small talk, all the normal things you would do. Um, but then when they ask you, well, what do you mean? And how does it work? Well, now, instead of going into this complex kind of awkward discussion about non-cash adjustment fees, instead you say, well, um, you know how fuel stations for the last like 50 years have been doing a cash at a card price and the card mm-hmm. price is a little higher, you know, and now I'll, I'll usually even ask the merchant, why do you think they have a higher card price? And they'll say, well, because it costs money to take cards. Exactly. Right. So I'll say, you know, now what you might not realize is because gas stations have been doing that for so long, all of their point of sale systems and technology is geared towards being able to do that. Whereas for your pizza shop or your, uh, you know, furniture store, hardware store, uh, the technology hasn't been around to do this effectively in, in the right way. Now that technology exists. So what I would like to do is help you to be able to set up a cash and a card price. Okay. Now mm-hmm. your current price that you have now, that would be the cash price, but our technology is going to gross up just a tiny little bit and take the cash price up to make a card price. Our company is going to take the difference, that tiny little bit of extra revenue. We're going to collect that from you each day. We're going to use that to offset the cost of payment processing. The net effect for you is your revenue is the same as it is now, but you're not going to pay any payment processing costs. And you're presenting to the consumer a cash and a card price, correct? Letting the consumer choose which one they want. And does it also require um, signage in the front and at the cash register? It does. It does. And I've, I've actually not been... I, you know, again, it's such a new concept. I, you know, haven't been able to talk to too many ISOs about the signage yet. I actually right. like a lot of the signage I'm seeing um, for these programs. But anyway, we're, we're getting the, even the sign I put up <laughs> myself because I was working with a processor on it and uh-huh. I hadn't actually seen their language. <laughs> I posted right. a picture of it on the Facebook group, <laughs> but I, I put it up and I was like, really? Uh, so it, it needs some work. But, but yeah, you can put up a very simple sign, ideally, which would say like, we have a cash and a card price. Thank you for your business. You know, not quite that right. simple, but pretty close. 
Um, but yeah, we can do something pretty simple there. But uh, yeah, so so that's dual pricing. So again, um, you have that one other real quick benefit I do want to share. There are markets in the US right now where there's a lot of cash discounting already. Um, I'm in rural central Pennsylvania and it is everywhere. Um, you know, in small part due to me, because early on I was selling it, but there's a lot of other people now that have been selling it too. So a lot of people have the cash discount program. So now I'll go in with them and I'll say, uh, you know, uh, maybe I'll buy something from them if I can, but I get, I'll say, uh, you know, I couldn't help but notice here that you're doing the cash discounting. How's that working out? And they'll say, oh, we love it. Usually, you know, oh, it's no problem. And I'll say, well, that's great. I said, now I'm sure your current processor today, have they reached out to you? I'm sure in the last month or so with that memo that Visa sent out about how you have to change the, the way this prints out on the receipt and everything in the next like 30 days. They're like, no, they didn't say anything. So I'll, I'll, I bring the memo with me and I literally have it highlighted and I show them and I say, well, here you go. And I have it highlighted where it talks about non-compliant cash discounting, where it adds a fee and all this stuff. Um, then I say, then, then they'll, you know, I'll say, yeah, it, it has to change. It's, it's just a slight change, but it's a really, really important change. Uh, and then they'll say, well, what does that have to change to? And I'll say, well, actually, it's funny you asked that. Visa actually put a memo out several years ago that spells out exactly what you're supposed to do. Uh, you, you've ever been to a fuel station where they have a cash and a card price? And then I show them the other memo. Anyway, that's what I do. Um, if you'd like copies of that memo and stuff, um, just go to ccsellspro.com slash insights. And you can download the uh, dual price, uh, case for dual pricing. And I have the uh, images there with that language. And so you okay. can grab that there. But um, anyway, so that's that's you know the big benefit selling dual pricing. Now, if you listen in next week, I have a really interesting story to tell you. I was installing a terminal and a consumer walked up before the terminal was installed and had a very interesting conversation with the owner of the furniture store as we were installing the terminal. Me and Donnie were there installing the terminal. Um, and so I'm going to share that next week. And I want to talk about overcoming the objection of the, the you know, my consumers aren't going to like it and talk mm -hmm. about how dual pricing also is a really, really much better in terms of dealing with that objection. So tune in next week and I'll share that uh, that story with you. But that's my highlights on dual pricing and how to sell Looking it. Looking forward to next week. Thanks, James. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. So James, this week I wanna share some news from the crypto front. You know, we've talked a lot about that over the last several months. First, the bad news. The uh, Federal Trade Commission reports that fraudsters have stolen over $1 billion in cryptocurrencies from at least 46,000 Americans since the start of 2021. Wow. That's, that's a lot of money, you know, and uh, cryptocurrency scams accounted for about one in four dollars reported loss to fraud in that time period, mm -hmm. which is more than any other form of payment, according to the FTC. And things could get worse. Mm. The lot, because of the losses um, covered in the FTC's report, that's, you know, a billion dollars, right? Right. 680 million of that was in 2021. So that tells me it's just oh, yeah. going up. Yeah. Sure. You know, nearly half that amount, 39, 329 million um, in the first three months of 2022. So you oh. do, do that and you're thinking, uh, you know, times four, that's about a billion and a quarter, something yeah. around there. Yeah. 
Um, and most of the reported losses were in the form of payments uh, made using Bitcoin. Sure. Now, the scams, um, most of the scams begin on social media, involve investments that turned out to be too good to be true, mm-hmm. or romance scams, many of those of which have an, an investment angle. Okay. Uh, um, now, the FTC report com, uh, comes amid extreme volatility in the crypto market. Anybody who's been paying attention lately knows that the uh, price of Bitcoin has tumbled dramatically from about 69000 um, in November of 2021 to this week. It's uh, the 17th of June that I'm recording this. Today, it's trading at twenty, just over $20,000. Yeah, I, I, I literally had it pulled up when, I, when you started talking about Bitcoin. I right? pulled it up. I knew you like, I did, right? 20,520 20, and six months ago, it was at 50,000. Yes. And, and um, nine months ago, it was at 70,000. Right. So, and Ethereum, which is another one of the, I think that's like the sec, they say it's the second most popular behind Bitcoin. Right. Its market value has been slashed by 75% since November, 2021, went from 4426 to just over $1,100 today. And, you know, I, I think one of the interesting things, and I know this is not what this segment is about, but I, I think it's interesting that, you know, that these cryptocurrencies, while I do think long-term there's something viable here, you know, because they're not based on anything other than just kind of the trust of the market. Um, right. You know, the problem with that is, when trust begins to erode, that tends to mm-hmm. kind of multiply on itself and go exponential. Yeah, it's like a viral. It's viral, really. It is. You know, it is. It's like, well, yeah. if everybody doesn't believe it's worth anything, then it's not worth anything. So right. I better sell it before everybody else believe. You know, it's like. So I think they. You know, there's a lot of volatility there, but I think on the other side too, um, we have to remember that as an asset class, um, you know, even though they've grown a lot, you know, Bitcoin relative to say the U.S. dollar or the you know the pound or something or the yen. I mean, it's like a gnat on the back of an elephant. Well, so, it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously, what you know, the the larger the um, the market capitalization of a particular asset class, um, then obviously the the lower the volatility. And so, mm-hmm. I do think over time, uh, over the next twenty years, you know, these swings will. Uh, yeah, twenty years maybe, yeah. <laughs> or there'll so. be something else that comes along. In that, well, again, in that, yeah, that right, interim, right, right. But, but you know, cryptocurrencies in general as an asset class, right, um, relative to fiat currencies, it just it doesn't have the the um, you know high level of value there, and so it's right. you know it's going to have more uh, it's going to have more volatility. But anyway, and it doesn't have the historical perspective as well, right? Exactly. But um, so anyway, so I told you the bad news. I wanted to give us some good yes. news because yes. you and I have um, interviewed a few people on this podcast that are you know uh, doing crypt you know supporting crypto payments at the point of sale, right? And um, there's a new survey by the consultancy uh, Deloitte, um, which found uh, 85, they surveyed about 2000 US merchants and found 85% expect digital currencies to be ubiquitous in their respective industries within five years. Oh, wow. Good. Yeah. And industries represented include digital goods, electronics, fashion, food, food and beverage, home and garden, hospitality, transportation, all the you know, the ones that we've talked about. Right. Um, and what was really interesting is that about half of the retailers of the merchants uh, surveyed said they've already invested more than a million dollars towards enabling crypto payments. Yep. Um, 
Now, challenges retailers expect to confront in enabling um, you know, these digital currencies include the complexity of integrating with existing financial right. infrastructures sure. or across various currencies, as well right. as regulatory initiatives. Yes. Um, the survey, which was de- interestingly enough, was developed in collaboration with PayPal, also identified steps that payment processors can take to provide more favorable conditions for adoption, um, including the elimination of traditional hold periods, uh, elimination of transaction costs, incentive programs, things sure. like that. And I just wanted to you know, um, interject here a related development, which kind of piqued my interest when I saw that PayPal had um, you know, hired Deloitte to do this research. Right. Um, I don't know if you were if you saw this yet, um, but the New York Department of Financial Services has awarded a bit license to PayPal. Really? Yeah, it just was uh, a week or two ago. Huh. Um, and that because of that, now PayPal account holders can transfer cryptocurrencies to other wallets and exchanges. Makes hmm. it a whole lot easier for me to pay you in Bitcoin, for example. And um uh, that's, you know, the whole idea with a bit license is that company it basically gives companies um, the authorization to operate crypto exchanges in New York, for example, in compliance with New York regulations. Sure. Wow. That's um, pretty, pretty big deal for PayPal to get that, actually. I, I think that's a really that big yet. deal. That's yeah, cool. I think it's a really big deal. So, you know, I think we're going to, you know, we, we may have some... Um, some volatility there, but I, you know, I think this is something that's here to stay. I agree. I agree. I think uh, it'd be very interesting to see how it plays out over the next kind of, I, w- I really wouldn't be surprised if the bottom dropped out even further. Uh, oh, I wouldn't next, either. I'm fa- in fact, I, so. I fully expect it to because yeah. I've been watching it for the last month and the drops have been pretty significant. When you have drops like that, it's, it's pretty easy. Yeah. And how many times has the bottom fallen out of Exactly. Bitcoin, you know, at least, right. this is at least a third time to my to my knowledge. And I think maybe the difference this time is this is probably the longest. And I don't know. I guess I should look at it first before I say it. But I, I would I would think this has got to be one of the longest um, kind of steady declines. Is, is I was looking at a chart today um, yeah. and it's it's definitely um, in terms of the um, the scope of the decline. It, right. It's, it's much right. more. It's much deeper than in the past. But again, we're talking about higher values than in the past, you know? I mean, you know, there was a time when Bitcoin was selling for a thousand and then it dropped down to 500, which looked really bad, but from 60,000 to 20,000 is a whole lot worse. Right, right, yeah. Well, good stuff, Patty. I appreciate the update and all this stuff, really good. Sure thing. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.